Living Corporate is brought to you by Canaries. Let me tell you about Canaries. Canaries is a tech company formed in 2018 by black founders who experienced inequities in the corporate world like most of us in the workplace. They saw typical diversity initiatives, but knew that to create systemic change, diversity, equity, and inclusion needed to be done differently. They're still ahead of the curve, focusing on the E and the I using a data-driven approach. Think Canary in the Coal Mine. The name is a nod to the canaries coal miners used to bring into mines to determine if the work environment was safe or undesirable. That's what they do for companies. They help you find the folks you need to listen to, the canaries, who will help you diagnose, measure, and attack your DEI challenges. Canaries has your back. Check them out at www.canaries.com backslash employer. That's www.kanarys.com backslash employer. Living Corporate is brought to you by Black Men in Tech. Black Men in Tech's mission is to elevate the voice of black men in the technology space by offering year-round engagement opportunities and philanthropic contributions for people and the black community, the neighborhood. In the tech industry, black men regularly struggle to access networking and career advancement opportunities. At Black Men in Tech 2021, they are partnering with their allies to create a safer space where black men can share their experiences authentically. Through this effort, Black Men in Tech hopes to share knowledge that can be used by black attendees to overcome race-based obstacles while also offering non-black allies the chance to learn how they can be more supportive of their melanated colleagues. To learn more about the Black Men in Tech conference that will be happening on June 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, check them out at blackmenintech.com. That's B-L-K-M-E-N-I-N-T-E-C-H dot com. Black Men in Tech. What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate. And if you weren't here last week, I'm here to tell you right now. I'm so excited. Living Corporate is working with Pfizer over the next several weeks to spotlight some of their black leaders in their corporate affairs office. Really talking about a couple of things, right? So we're talking to leaders about the work with their COVID-19 vaccine. We're talking to them about the work that they're doing in the social impact space and how they're engaging the communities. And... We're talking about the work that Pfizer is doing internally to make sure that they are uh, a choice place, a choice employer for black and brown folks at work and frankly for everybody. Right. So I'm really excited about the fact that we are uh, kicking off this campaign. Make sure you are subscribing and make sure that you share this episode with somebody. All right. Now, look, to kick us off, we're going to kick us off proper. We're going to kick us off with Dr. Dara Richardson Heron. Dr. Dara Richardson Heron is Pfizer's first chief patient officer. She stands on the front lines specifically to advocate for equitable patient care. Her story, her journey is inspirational and it comes together in a really beautiful way. And you understand why she's doing the work that she's doing. We had a phenomenal conversation. I'm going to tell you all straight up, you know, we, you know, y'all see if you don't know, like we pull quotes, right? And we create different marketing copy. I could literally take the entire interview Everything that Dr. Dara said was fire, fire. In fact, I'm going to give you an honorary flex bomb right here. Give it to me right here. I just, man, phenomenal, 
phenomenal interview. I can't wait for y'all to listen. In fact, we're going to go straight to tapping in with Tristan and then we'll get back with that. All right. So I'll see you in a minute. Catch you in a second. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, we're going to talk about three signs it's time to take something off your resume. During many of my consultations with potential clients, I always get questions on when they should take something off their resume. While most people will tell you to only keep the latest 10 to 15 years of experience on your resume, I don't think the answer is as cut and dry. So let's dive into a few things I consider when thinking of taking something off of a resume. The first thing is relevance. When recruiters and hiring managers look at your resume, we know they first scan it for about six seconds. During that period, they wanna see your most relevant experience. Suppose you have experiences that aren't relevant, but you don't wanna remove them completely. In that case, you can name your experience section selected relevant experience and then create an additional experience section that only lists the job title, company, dates, and no description. This allows recruiters and hiring managers to see you have the work history, but positions your most relevant experience front and center. The second thing is redundancy. As we progress through our careers, we will often have roles where we've done very similar or nearly identical tasks. We don't have to beat hiring managers and recruiters over the head with the same skill 10 times. So look at your older roles, which may be 10 to 15 years back. And if none of the skills listed are unique, consider putting it in that additional experience section I mentioned above or removing it altogether. Lastly is space. If you're running low on space, I suggest identifying the jobs with the least amount of relevant skills or jobs that only showcase skills that are already represented by more recent roles. From there, you can do one of three things. First, reduce the description down only to the unique skills or accomplishments. Second, remove the descriptions and put the job in the additional experience section we discussed above. Third, remove the job in its entirety. Remember, the advice you receive around your job search is often not as cut and dry as people try to make it. Since people will ultimately review your resume, there are numerous preferences that we are trying to accommodate for here. I find these three things to be the best indicators of when a job may need to come off your resume and you will have a valid explanation as to why they were removed. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. At Living Corporate, we often talk about how we as black folks show up at work and how these corporate power structures impact how we show up. But we know when work ends, we come home, log off and have to show up at home for our families and communities. And as a black man, I often turn to Let's Talk, bruh, for the real, honest and healing conversations on black masculinity, mental health and patriarchy. Let's Talk, bruh, or LTB is a platform that creates content around black masculinity and the impact of patriarchy in black communities. In other words, Let's Talk Bruh is having real conversations that black men need to hear and be a part of. Let's Talk Bruh creates interactive, healing, and learning experiences with black men and male socialized folks of all sexual orientations and gender identities. Through their content and community-based programs, Let's Talk Bruh seeks to reduce patriarchal violence in our community and provide support to those most impacted by patriarchal violence, specifically black women, girls, femmes, queer, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. Tap in at letstalkbruh.com. To be clear, that's let 
talk, B-R-U-H.com. So, brothers, what are you waiting for? Let's talk, bro. Dr. Dare, welcome to the show. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing great. Uh, and I'm just delighted to be here with you, Zach. Um, thank you for uh, having me on the, the Living Corporate Show. Uh, you know, I've been reflecting on how vital spaces like Living Corporate are for young Black and Brown professionals navigating their career. So I'm just honored to be here and thank you for your vision and service. I, actually, I wish there were more resources like this available to me when I was just starting out. Oh my gosh, Doctor, you got me blushing. Okay, well, hold on now. Um, <laughs> now let, <laughs> let, let's let's start by talking about your journey. You've taken a relatively non-traditional path. Why did you choose to take on the roles that you have in your career, given that you're a medical doctor? Well, you know, Zach, that's a great question. You know, let me start by sharing a bit about my background and professional journey. You know. I was laser focused on becoming a doctor from really as early as I can remember. It was one of the few times I haven't had a plan B. Uh, in fact, my parents told me that by the time I reached the ripe old age of two, that I was convinced uh, that I could wield power and influence as a leader. Uh, they actually shared that uh, during my terrific twos, well, they didn't call them terrific, I think they probably were, <laughs> uh, I, I, I declared to them and, and anyone who would listen that I wanted to be a doctor. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I, you know, I think that choice was influenced in part by my, my grandparents, a general practitioner, that's what it was called at the time. I'm, I'm dating myself, I know, but you know, his name was Dr. Finley. And, and, and Dr. Finley was like a, you know, a small G God to them. Um, you know, he was actually their go-to, not only for their healthcare issues, but for honestly, for everything major that I can remember, my, my grandparents trusted their doctor literally with their life. And I guess, you know, somehow seeing that trusted relationship from an early age inspired me to want to play a similar role in, in people's lives, to be someone that people can trust for information. Now, fortunately, as a result of a whole lot of studying, combined with the love, guidance, and support of my family and countless mentors, I achieved my goal of, of going to medical school and becoming a doctor. And um, I, I went to New York University. It's interesting Choosing to study medicine at New York University um, Medical School in New York, it was very intentional. And it was because I wanted to learn about healthcare and preventive medicine in one of the most diverse cities in the world and at a place where I'd have the opportunity to provide high quality care for also a, a diverse array of people who presented with a diverse set of medical challenges and conditions. And so I also uh, did my medical residency in internal medicine at Bellevue Hospital, which many of you may know as the oldest public hospital in the nation, right? Everybody knows Bellevue. A lot of people know it for the psychiatric part of it, but it's also one of the largest hospitals in the United States. And, you know, I chose Bellevue because, you know, for years I I'd learned about health disparities and academic settings. But at Bellevue, let me be clear. I mean, at Bellevue, you're on the front lines. You're seeing health disparities play out in a real way. And it's sad because it's often because people just have little or no access to healthcare. And, you know, when I was in medical school, um, it, you know, it was at the height of the AIDS epidemic before we even were calling it AIDS. Uh, we had l very, very limited treatment options and people were dying left and right, much like we're seeing now with COVID. And I, you know, honestly, I, I think it was my experiences at Bellevue that made it crystal clear but I wanted to use my time and talents to make a difference in the world far beyond what was possible in a typical medical practice at the time. 
And so honestly, I said, I'm not going to be bound. I'm going to let anybody put any limits on my potential or box me in. I've kept my eyes open on how I could leverage my skills as a leader. And I just have been very intentional about not allowing my doctorate of medicine uh, to, to limit me. So you're right. My path has been truly non-traditional. Um, I've had a 25 plus year professional career that spanned um, leadership roles in for-profit companies, non-profit government organizations. You know, I've led in, in the health department at Con Edison. I've had executive positions at United Cerebral Palsy, at Susan G. Coleman, YWCA USA, and, and most recently the National Institutes of Health. And I've carried learnings from each of these experiences with me. And of course, this collective experience also informs the work I do today at Pfizer as chief patient officer. And so for me throughout my career, the goal has been continuous learning, continuous growth, and most importantly, continuous impact. I love that. And, you know, in the path, in your medical path, you ultimately wanted to go into pharmaceuticals. I'm curious, what drew you to the pharmaceutical industry specifically? Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I actually joined um, Pfizer in, in February of 2020, right as the pandemic lockdown started here. In, and I'm in New York City. Uh, so I'm relatively new to the world of, of pharmaceuticals. And, you know, some might consider joining a major pharmaceutical company to be an unusual choice for a physician who is also a healthcare advocate, but I don't. And, and let me just say, I'm not naive uh, at all to some of the concerns and perceptions that people have about biopharma companies, but as a caregiver and as a physician whose family and patients' lives have been enhanced, extended, or even saved by biopharmaceuticals, I've always been grateful for those on the front lines in this industry developing treatments that have led to major advances in health and longevity. I mean, think about the vaccine. Pfizer's mission is breakthroughs that change patients' lives. And it's one that I fully believe in. And But, but I, I need to be really uh, clear here. For me, this is also very personal. I myself was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 34. Mm. And basically for treatment at that time, there were four cocktails of, of IV chemotherapy. And honestly, one was worse than the other. But these treatments um, developed by uh, pharma companies saved my life. And that's why I'm blessed to still be here today to talk to you, Zach. And, you know, thanks to continued research, medical breakthroughs, innovative advances and new treatments developed by this industry, you know, doctors today uh, have an arsenal of medical treatments um, designed to enhance the quality of life and survival rates for many devastating chronic and rare diseases. And, and that's really good news. So, you know, you ask why I want to uh, go into this field. I mean, it, it's because I and many of my patients, my family members, my friends, we've been the beneficiaries of significant advances in medicine. And so a large part of my motivation to take on this role as chief patient officer comes from wanting to ensure that the advancements from biopharmaceutical companies that enabled me to be here with you today, I want those to be accessible to everyone, irrespective of their background, their income, or their zip code. And, you know, I, I get it. Pharma is a strict and regulated industry. And yes, there are many different procedures in place to ensure medicines are safe. But let me tell you, these past 14 months have been anything but dry or dull. I would imagine. I mean, honestly, over the past few months, I've seen firsthand, and quite frankly, that the entire world has now seen how when pharmaceutical companies mobilize and work together, we can achieve breakthroughs and innovations that nobody thought possible, literally breakthroughs that have changed the world. And it's interesting because 
I know, you know, I, we, we have a few folks that we've interviewed for this series. Earlier, you know, we've spoken to, um, you know, Myron Terry, and we'll be, you know, sharing his, his interview a little bit later. But it's interesting. I don't see a lot of us in these very senior positions. We're going to talk about your role uh, in a little bit. But I'm curious, you know, you're a very prominent member of Pfizer, right? Like you're in this position. Um, it's been a little over a year. As someone who sat in these executive roles at various organizations, how have, you know, these barriers specifically regarding, you know, racism, sexism, misogyny, how have they shaped your career and motivations? How have you navigated those fields? And I ask this because really, I, it's so rare. We've seen the numbers. We know that there aren't many Black or Latinx or just generally Black and Brown folks at this level. How, what, what, what has it been like for you not only to get to this level, but then also, you know, stay here? Well, you know, that's a, a very interesting question. Let me just share a, a couple of stories that I, I really feel illustrate some of the barriers and challenges. You know, my first professional role as a physician was at Consolidated Edison of New York, um, the electric company. And people might say, well, what were you doing at Con Edison? Well, I was serving as the medical uh, director of the company's occupational health department, providing health evaluations and disease management to the more than 16,000 employees at the time. And in that role, I not only practiced medicine, but I also learned important leadership, business, financial, human resources, and management skills, all of which have been invaluable to me and, and have helped me uh, get into so many C-suite positions. And, you know, I was young, I was fresh out of residency, and I was full of energy. And after a year or so on the job, um, I heard about the company's high potential program for high achievement employees. And as time passed, it became clear that many of my colleagues, you know, in other areas were being considered for the program. but not me. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I know that, you know, I'm accomplishing a lot and I'm meeting all my goals, in fact, exceeding most of them. And so one day I just raised my hand and directly asked, why wasn't I being considered? Hmm. And it's so funny. One of the executives who actually later became a great friend of mine, she said without hesitation, and I'm going to quote her, she said, listen, Dara, you already have a doctorate of medicine. You don't need any additional development or higher title, end quote. Now, mm. I have to admit that I was surprised by her candor, but I was also deeply disturbed. And, and that's most of all because she and apparently others had taken the liberty to make decisions about me and my career advancement without the respect or courtesy of even checking in with me. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a shrinking violet. And, you know, you can't be as a woman of color if you want to get ahead. So I very respectfully, but clearly let her know that neither she nor any other company leader has the ability to put a limit on or, or confine my achievement. And, you know, here's the takeaway. I mean, many advancements have been made. There are a few more women um, in, you know, higher level positions, but still today as a woman and certainly as a woman of color, you often have to raise your hand and say, hey, consider me see me. It's just the reality. And yes, for those who are wondering, I did get into that high potential program. And ultimately, I was selected to a very coveted position uh, to serve as a special assistant to the CEO. So that's just one story. I have many. I have many. <laughs> well, you know, something that you spoke to, though, it's there is this reality of those on the margins we're often told, well, you've already done good enough, right? Oh, yeah. So so I, I have a, a similar, I'll, I'll trade you a story. I recall I was in seventh grade 
and I was in Minnesota. I had moved to move and live with my dad for a, for a couple of years. I was in Minnesota. Hey, my nieces and nephews grew up in Minnesota. My older sister is there in Eden Prairie. That's cool. Okay, Eden Prairie. Okay, so so then she wouldn't know Woodbury because that's where I was. Okay. So anyway, so I was in Woodbury, Minnesota. And, you know, they did the whole like kind of check in at the mid year or the mid six weeks, whatever it was. And the English teacher was talking to me and doing the parent conference thing. And the English teacher asked me, well, you know, what kind of books are you reading? And I said, I'm reading Virginia Hamilton. I'm reading um, just some other other books that were more senior level books or just, you know, higher literature books. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'll never forget the teacher looked at me and said, you know, you don't have to try so hard. You don't have to read. <laughs> you don't have to read such advanced books. You know, there's no need. You can. And I, ne- I never get my father. He looked at me in the middle of the conversation. He didn't say anything. And then we walked out the room and he said, son, don't ever live your life with uh, the limiters of other people on them. That's right. Right. Absolutely. And so to your point, you know, I think it is easy because folks may see you and say, well, they could have never imagined someone with your profile, even having a medical doctorate. So why would you want to do more? I, you're, you've already exceeded my own expectations, but we don't live to exceed or to match other people's expectations. We have to live with our own expectations and our own goals. Absolutely. And you know, it, it's so funny. That must be a thing in Minnesota because my nephew experienced almost the same thing. My sister and brother-in-law went up to a parent-teacher conference. He was about in the sixth or seventh grade. And um, basically, uh, the one comment that the teacher had for my uh, sister and brother-in-law was, you know, we think Brandon, um, you know, he's he's making A's on all of his classes, but he would be well served to let other kids um, have a chance to answer some of the questions. I'm like, oh, my goodness. So, you know, it's the reality. It's a world we live in. Fortunately, we have parents, mentors and friends, colleagues and others who can share their stories to help us know that, you know, the reality is you've got to not allow the haters to, you know, erode your life. I, I have a thing that I say, let your haters make you greater. And, and that's what you have to do. So. I love that. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's continue for, you know, looking back, if you could talk to a younger Dara, you know, what advice would you have given yourself and what would have helped you, do you think, in your career as you progress forward? Well, you know, Zach, there are a lot of things I wish I had known. Fortunately, my, my parents did, you know, try to prepare us for the world. But you know how you're, you're young and naive. And I remember my dad used to sit us down at the table and he'd talk about, you know, the tough times he'd have at work. And I, I remember my sisters and I would say, oh, daddy, he's such an angry man. But we didn't even know the half of what my dad was was living through and what he was going through um, at, at, at his job. You know, it's just amazing. But, you know, I guess, you know, first We've all heard that it's important for leaders of all stripes and particularly women to strategically like raise your hand and sign up and be bold and be out of the box and, and, and participate in non-traditional opportunities. I mean, you have to do that because if you don't do all of that, you know, particularly sometimes as a woman of color, or as a woman, you won't get recognized at all. But, you know, however, as a young professional, the young Dara, you know, and still today, I have what I call a serious case of uh, helium hands. Mm. This term was actually coined by Dr. Pamela Peek, and she has a book called Body for Life for Women. And it refers to the phenomenon many women, myself included, experience. We take on way too much. Our hands drift up almost involuntarily 
to sign up for yet another project, despite already having a full plate and doing more than our colleagues more often than not. And, you know, I think perhaps if I'd known that this disease of, of helium hands was incurable, you know, once you got older, I, I might have made sure not to catch it, or, or at least I would have developed a stronger muscle by now to say no more often. You know, and I say this a bit tongue in cheek, um, I do believe that it is important to strategically raise your hand and sign up for, for out of the box opportunities. But the truth of the matter is this, you know, while I've achieved success in many areas of my life, achieving work-life balance has been challenging. And a lot of it has to do with my determination to succeed and the realities of being a woman of color. But the truth is no one is expendable and it's just not healthy to always burn the candle on both ends. Because the truth is when you say yes to everything, it will almost certainly force you to have to say to say no to something or someone that might be even more important. And, and at the end of the day, saying yes to everything leaves you exhausted. And it brings me to my next point. It's so important, and I'm talking to myself here too, to take care of ourselves, to take time to rest, especially as ambitious professionals, this past year and a half has been devastating for everyone, but particularly hard for many communities of color around the world, watching and dealing with the reality and trauma of George Floyd's murder, the murders of so many other black and brown individuals, the ongoing civil rights protests on top of the mass trauma brought on by COVID and the health disparities that impacted our loved ones and communities at alarming rate. It has been exhausting to say the least. And while we don't have all the data, we know that in addition to the physical toll, these events are taking a huge mental toll on communities of color. And so it's so important that we do everything we can to take care of our mental and our physical health. In and out of the workplace, we have to make sure that we are protecting our peace. We have to give ourselves permission to step back when we need to. And again, I'm talking to me here, you know, and whether that means telling our team or even our family that we need to take a break for the afternoon, or we need to seek community and support from networks like Living Corporate, listen to your podcast. We need to make ourselves and our needs a priority. It's absolutely critical. And I just want to say there are many mental health resources to consider out there, such as Mental Health America. They have a website that's mhanational.org. There's something called the Black Mental Health Alliance, and their website is blackmentalhealth.com. I ran across something called BEAM, and it's called the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective, and their um, website is beam.community. And of course, there's the National Alliance of Mental Health, and that's nami.org. These are, are, are groups that are committed to the healing of Black communities, and we should not be afraid to seek help if we need it. I love that 100%. And, you know, since you're talking about organizations, you know, another one, Academics for Black Survival and Wellness. I love that. Yeah. 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 So academicsforblacklives.com. And then, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and talk about, since we're talking about this before we pivot on, I want to talk about uh, The Break Room. So The Break Room under the Living Corporate Network. It's actually hosted by four Black psychologists, psychiatrists, and therapists, all talking about mental health, wellness, and healing for Black uh, folks, particularly in the context of work. You know, you talk about, Dr. Dara, you talk about this idea, this concept of labor and protecting your peace. 
that just resonates so much with me. It's easy, I think, especially if you're one of the onlys, subconsciously or consciously, to just work harder. You talked about the fact that you found yourself doing more. I think it's easy to just get in that habit and you look up and you've been doing more for several years, yeah. right? Not even just several weeks. It's been like, you look at me like, wow, I've been burning the candle at both ends for several, several, several seasons. Yeah, let's say decades, you know? Decades, yeah. You know, and 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 to be honest, that most people of color, if you're in any level of, you know, authority, I mean, no matter what, <laughs> you are burning the candle on both ends. And part of it is our own doing because we have to, you know, do more. And that is really true. But a lot of it is necessary. Internalized. Yeah, but we got to realize if we don't take care of ourselves and put our own masks on, you know, we're not going to be available for, for anybody else. So, you know, I, I'm not saying we need to be slackers, but maybe maybe not 250%. Like maybe we can dial it back to like 175 or so. Maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so you're absolutely right. You know, I think about the fact I'm coming out of, um, I'm an ex-consultant and, you know, big four, you're talking about the Accentures of the World, Capgemini, yes. PwC. Yes. So anybody that knows that space of just professional client service, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about 40, 50, 60 hour weeks, yeah. you know, and, and, and going above and beyond. And that's that becomes the new floor. And then you have to somehow outperform that. So absolutely. And, and you know what else that, you know, this whole shift to um, virtual work. There are times when I'm in my home office, I go in before, you know, eight o'clock and I'm still there at 10 o'clock. I mean, that is just not healthy for anyone. And and so while being at home, people may think that, you know, it'll give you more freedom and flexibility. I'm finding and, and a lot of the data is showing that people are working longer and harder hours. So, you know, we really have to, to figure out a, a better way because at the end of the day, you know, um, when you're gone, you know, you might get a plaque at the office and, and the company's going to move on. <laughs> it's going to move on. No, you're 100% right. Man, it's just so, that's so true. And um, you have one life to live and you need to be thoughtful. And I, I think it's obvious. I'm talking to someone with a medical PhD. You know, your how you take care of your body matters. You, you know, you don't, we only get one of them on this side. We got to be thoughtful. So let's switch gears and focus a bit on, on your role in your work at Pfizer, right? You started your role as the chief patient officer last winter right before this pandemic really picked the momentum up. You know, I see the title chief patient officer. What does that mean? And you came into this role pre-pandemic. What were your expectations of the role in 2020? And then how did they shift, if they shifted at all, as the year progressed? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I kind of kicked off this role. And at the same time that, that COVID kicked off. Um, I was actually being recruited for this role in late 2019 before COVID-19 was in my or anyone's lexicon. So it, it's amazing when they say what a difference a day makes. Man, it, it's mm. amazing how quickly things change. And in fact, as you mentioned, I just celebrated my one year anniversary and, and it's just been an amazing ride. You know, I, I have this thing that I talk to my nieces and nephews about. It's called the five P's and it's prior planning prevents poor performance. So I pride myself on trying to be prepared for every eventuality. But let me just be clear. I and, and many others surely didn't see a pandemic coming when I was considering the chief patient officer role. And take it from me, onboarding during a pandemic is not for the faint of heart. But, you know, I'm a woman of faith and I, I firmly believe that everything happens for a reason. And I'm also deeply honored and proud to have had the opportunity to be part of Pfizer's amazing accomplishments over the past year. In terms of my role, my, my chief patient officer role um, is, is primarily to engage employees 
patients and patient advocacy groups to advance our goal of improving health outcomes and reducing healthcare disparities. And also by ensuring that the patient perspective is at the center of everything we do. And, you know, um, we have to, you know, identify and create frameworks uh, on how we interact with patients and we share learnings. We also have to find opportunities to collaborate, both internally and externally, and also, you know, figure out how to co-create or create solutions by working with patients, not just for patients. Now, this part of the job really um, didn't change. That was always a part of the job um, because the reality is, and why we have a chief patient officer role is, you know, let's face it, if we develop medicines, treatments, or vaccines without the direct input and participation of patients from all walks of life, it's very hard to ensure that these developments are going to be actually beneficial for all patients. And so I came to Pfizer knowing about this, and, and I was really excited uh, about this possibility, you know, to really uh, change and impact lives. And, and I continue to be humbled by my colleagues who are committed to focusing on patients and, and health equity. Now, you know, you asked how did the pandemic change things? Well, uh, because of the pandemic, during my first few weeks on the job, as I mentioned, there was no time for onboarding. Thankfully, they got a, a seasoned professional. Um, it was yes. all hands on deck. I was called into action right away to leverage my skills, my knowledge, and my expertise as a physician, actually, to serve as a spokesperson about COVID uh, to both internal and external key stakeholders. And also very early on in my tenure, uh, and particularly once we knew that Pfizer was going to develop a vaccine, I was able to leverage my experience from the National Institutes of Health, where I served as the chief engagement officer. And I worked with the Pfizer clinical research teams to double down on our clinical trial diversity efforts and do everything we could to achieve equitable representation in our COVID-19 clinical trials. This was vitally important, um, and we are so proud of our success in this regard. And the reason being is if you are not part of the research, you risk being left out of the cures. And so it was important for us to work with community partners and make sure that we selected uh, clinical sites in diverse communities so that people who were most impacted by COVID could participate in the research. And that way we would know that, you know, the vaccine that was created would be impactful in those communities. Zach, you may or may not know, but I'm sure that, you know, it's important for me to make it clear. A lot of the medicines that are out there today have not been tested on black and brown communities, often because we're not participating in the trials. Now, the reality is there are many reasons why there's hesitancy on our part to participate in the trials because of historic transgressions. But the truth is there have been many protections put in place to protect research subjects. And as I said, if you're not part of the research, there's no guarantee that the medicines, the vaccines, or anything developed is going to be impactful in your community. So I just want to put in a plug there to make sure that we as people of color are participating in clinical trials because it matters. And so, you know, whether it's pre or post COVID, my focus is on making sure that we can all work together to enhance Pfizer's capacity for what we call end to end partnerships and advocacy, you know, and that is really listening to and responding to patients through every phase of our work here at Pfizer. And it's no small feat in such a large organization, but I'm really excited to be here in this role at this moment. Well, I am thankful that we have someone in a role specifically to advocate for those who are, we are called perhaps the least among us, right? And the people whose voices go unheard. It's incredible. And to, to that end, 
you know, in previous conversations, I want to say actually in the profile that Pfizer published about you again, one year, about a little over one year ago, you talked about patient centric care and that it isn't really as complex as people make it out to be, that it's really no more complex than just listening to patients. What steps do you feel need to be taken to make sure that the voices of patients are heard, particularly those on the margins? You know, and that's such a great question, Zach. You know, historically, medicine has been practiced from the point of view of the physician. You know, remember my grandparents' general practitioner that I mentioned before, Dr. Finley, who was like a little G-god to them? You know, it's remarkable, but also somewhat limiting. And if we think about industry more broadly, medicine development has typically been driven by the insights of scientists and their research labs and commercial experts who work to ensure that they understand the needs of patients and healthcare providers. And while all of this is well-intentioned, it was kind of a, a paternalistic model. And so today, patients are much more informed and they not only want, but they deserve to be partners in their own healthcare in disease prevention, and in, in making treatment decisions as appropriate. You know, traditionally, you know, as physicians, we saw ourselves as working on behalf of patients. But going forward, we want to work more directly with patients. And, you know, when I think about it, there are three key steps that really should be taken to create respectful and what I call bi-directional relationships with patients. First, we have to communicate in clear and easy-to-understand ways. You know, the smartest people should be able to break down medical jargon in a way that people understand it. The second thing we have to do is listen. And when I say listen, I mean without judgment. And then, of course, the third is, is to work in partnership, to co-create solutions, to take action and incorporate what we learn into our standard practices. You know, we have so many examples at Pfizer of how we are doing this. And, you know, I am so excited to be partnering with our health literacy teams and other teams uh, to help patients and caregivers understand their health conditions better, because the more they know, the better they'll be able to take care of themselves. But without trusted relationships, you know, it, this will never happen. So our goal is to make sure that we are building the trust and making sure that patients have what they need so that they can uh, lead healthy and productive lives. Let's talk a little bit about especially around healthy and productive lives in this season. Let's talk a bit about Pfizer's journey in developing the COVID vaccine. Can you tell us about like how Pfizer considered equity and accessibility for black and brown patients? And then what does that work look like today where there's still a significant portion of the population that is not vaccinated? You know, as I mentioned, you know, shortly after the pandemic hit, our, our CEO, Albert Bloor, launched what he called a five-point plan, which called on all members of the ecosystem from large pharmaceutical companies to the smallest of biotech companies, from government agencies to academic institutions, to commit to work together to address the dire COVID-19 crisis. This was unprecedented because typically people were kind of just, you know, working separately in their silos. But our leadership knew that collaboration would be required to come back of this pandemic. And we also know that we had to think proactively about reaching and, and engaging historically underserved populations throughout the process. So, you know, as I mentioned before, the clinical trial diversity, it required us to not only select sites that were important and diverse so that people could overcome the barriers of transportation and costs to try to get to a clinical trial site, we also work with many um, grassroots community and professional organizations, organizations like the National Black Nurses Association, Dia de la Mujer, you know, uh, to get out information and videos about the clinical trial. 
We work with the NAACP to share facts with their chapters about the COVID-19 trials. We work with the National Association of Hispanic Publishers and groups like the 100 Black Men of America to build awareness. We work with so many organizations to raise awareness uh, for the need uh, for diverse clinical trial participants. And this was so important. And, and you might ask, well, how did these efforts pay off? Again, you know, from a clinical trial recruitment perspective, the great news is that approximately 42% of the global participants and 30% of the U.S. participants enrolled in our clinical trial came from diverse backgrounds. And I'll give you just a breakdown just so that you can understand. You know, overall, we had 5% Asian and we had 10% Black, 26% Hispanic, Latinx, and 1.1% Native American. And it's really important to highlight that these enrollment numbers are significantly higher than what you typically see in a clinical trial. And so we are very proud to have achieved this level of diversity in such a short period of time. And you, you ask, what are you looking at now? What does it look like now? Well, we are continuing to be very intentional about how we manage our trials going forward so that we can have similar results um, because it's so important to engage um, our, our Black and Brown communities in research. Because as I said, if you're not part of the research, you may or may not benefit from the cures. And I, I know that we want all of our communities to have equal access to health and health care, and we definitely want to achieve uh, health equity. So Dr. Dara, you've had a, a storied career. You've been in these boardrooms for several years, several different organizations. You've seen a lot. Right now, we're in a season where diversity, equity, inclusion, where equitable patient care, and really an emphasis on equitable treatment for Black and brown populations, Black and brown people, marginalized people, continues to be a focus. What is your message to healthcare executives looking to improve their patient care for Black and brown populations? And if you had to give them three points of advice, like what would they be? I first want to say that there is really no one-size-fits-all way to improve patient care. Communities are, are just not monolithic. Everyone from providers to patient advocates to um, biopharma executives, uh, we all play a, a different role in addressing and remedying uh, the health disparities. But that being said, I, I think there are a few helpful ways to think about being a patient advocate, particularly for black and brown populations. But I think this goes for all communities. So, so the first thing is to put yourself in the shoes of the patients. In order to address an issue, you have to understand it and you have to understand it from the patient's vantage point. Health disparities don't exist in a vacuum. So it's really important for all of us to understand the types of disparities and the causes. And we need to understand why the disparities exist um, in the health conditions. Is it because people can't afford the medicines they should be taking? They don't know where to access physicians. They don't have access to health care. Or is it more related to systemic challenges, uh, the social determinants of health, which include things like racism, poverty, lack of education, and a host of other things? We need to figure out what that is. And there, these are tough things to decipher. We often don't have a simple answer, but I think it's important to understand these issues and put ourselves in the shoes of those we seek to serve, because it's only by understanding the challenges that our patients face can we collectively act to reduce their barriers uh, to care. That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, we have to meet people and patients wherever they are. And I mean this both literally and figuratively. Um, for example, you mentioned um, vaccine and vaccine hesitancy a little bit earlier. You know, let me just talk about this in terms of, of meeting people wherever they are in their vaccine education journey. You know, we're seeing varying rates of vaccine uptake from communities across the United States. 
racial, ethnic, senior, and other diverse communities are responding differently to different types of engagement. And, and that's, that's okay. I mean, you know, precision engagement is, is what it's all about. But, you know, while we must make sure that the value proposition is clear as to why people from all walks of life should consider getting vaccinated, we also have to be very mindful that at the end of the day, taking a vaccine or any medication or treatment for that matter is a personal decision. And it's our job is not to judge or to embarrass or try to shame people, but instead we as healthcare professionals need to do whatever it takes to make sure that our communities and our families are fully informed with the most accurate, culturally sensitive and actionable information available so that they can make the best decisions for themselves, their families and our world. And, you know, some providers are even meeting their patients where they are literally uh, removing barriers like transportation, you know, and, and by going to the community instead of asking the community to come to them. And I love this as an idea. For example, the city of New York recently launched a series of mobile vaccination buses. And these buses are traveling throughout all five boroughs with multilingual, culturally sensitive support. And the goal is to provide a care for these hard to reach populations free of charge. That's how you really reach a population and meet people where they are. And then thirdly, and lastly, we have to remember that patients are our partners. I, I spoke early about the need for patients to be actively involved and engaged in their care. Uh, patients want to understand their treatment options and the benefits and risk. They want to make the decisions they want to make about their health. They want to be in the driver's seat. Uh, many are making decisions about what matters most to them and their families and their caregivers. And they also want to make choices about the quality of life they want to leave. And, and I find this to be a good thing because generally when a patient is engaged in their health, they are much more likely to be more proactive in managing their health uh, in a most positive way. And that's vitally important. Now, I'll note that there are times when it's a fine line. Uh, yes, you want patients involved in their care. And yes, you absolutely want them to partner with you on the best treatment. But it's a bit of a challenge when some patients think that they become expert diagnosticians after doing just a, a few you know, hours of research with Dr. Google. Now, as I've joked in the past, I don't want people to confuse their 10 to 20 minutes of Google research with my you know, 10 to 15 years of medical training. Uh, I think we can all agree that there's a balance between patient input and a diagnostician's expertise. Yes. But if I had to choose, I'm really excited about patients as partners in their health and healthcare because I know for sure that authentic bi-directional patient engagement and shared decision-making has the potential to make a huge positive impact in patient outcomes. So these are my three pieces of advice. Put yourself in the shoes of the patient, meet patients where they are, and remember that patients are a partner. No matter what area of healthcare you work in, uh, with every decision you make, ask yourself, you know, am I doing what I need to do to benefit the patients I'm serving? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Dr. Dare, this has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. We consider you a friend of the show. And uh, we're going to let you go. But thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Well, it's my pleasure, Zach. And, and thank you for having me on the show and, and really for creating the space for me to reflect on my career journey and my passion for Pfizer and the patient-centricity work we're doing here. It's really a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure is all mine. We'll talk to you soon. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network. Hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards, the leadership range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. 
every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Yo, thank you so much, Tristan. Great content per usual. Thank you, Dr. Dara. Thank you, Pfizer. Excited about this campaign. Make sure uh, that if you haven't done your research, that you click the links in the show notes, learn about what Pfizer has been doing, learn about Dr. Dara, learn about Pfizer, right? So check out the links in the show notes, click around, explore what they got going on. And um, yeah, look, we'll talk to you soon. This is an ongoing campaign. We'll catch y'all very soon with our next leadership interview. In the meantime, click them links in the show notes. Catch you later. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.